Good morning, everybody. Uh, despite the um, clock here on the wall telling us otherwise, it's actually 8 o'clock, so we're going to go ahead and get started. For the folks that are listening from far away, I'm going to just tell you our CME code for today, which is 3AXY. 3AXY. And then I will introduce Brian Marsh, who is the Section Chief for uh, Infectious Disease and International Health, um, to tell us about today's speaker. Thank you. Welcome, everybody. So my pleasure to introduce a member of our faculty, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Talbot. Many of you know her. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time, because I, I suspect that Elizabeth has a lot to tell us. Um, uh, <clears throat> Elizabeth uh, went to college at Mount Holyoke, then uh, did her um, medical school at uh, UMDNJ, and then moved from there uh, to Duke, where she did her the rest of her training, including ID fellowship. She then, very importantly, uh, moved to the uh, EIS, the Epidemic Intelligence Service of the CDC, where she spent three years, five years, long time, um, really um, getting engaged in epidemic investigation, public health activities, global health, all of which has been sort of the, the love of her professional life since then, uh, where she's focused really all of her activities. Uh, she came to Dartmouth in 2003, 2003, thank you very much. Um, uh, she's now an associate professor here, and she ca uh, has a number of roles at Dartmouth. Um, She's the medical director for our travel clinic. She is the associate director for research at the Dartmouth Center for uh, Healthcare Equity. Um, <clears throat> she is very involved in clinical activities with a focus on mycobacterial infections, TB, uh, and non-tuberculous mycobacteria. Uh, she squeezes in a fair bit of international health work. She's been actively working in Haiti, Tanzania, Swaziland, um, with a focus again on uh, tuberculosis, tuberculosis uh, eradication, elimination. Uh, and sounds pretty busy, right? Got to remind you, that's less than half of her job. So she's also the... Um, uh, deputy State Epidemiologist, title varies a little bit, but in essence uh, still the Deputy State Epidemiologist for the State of New Hampshire, which is actually more than half of her job. So really pretty astounding uh, that Elizabeth manages to fit all that in. As the Deputy State Epidemiologist, she's very involved in outbreak investigations with the state, including the recent Legionella outbreak from at a resort in the coast. Elizabeth always puts resort in quotations. Apparently it's kind of skanky, but and that investigation is actually what precipitated this medical grand rounds when our group was thinking about um, uh, what we would like to bring to the audience. Um, we had uh, a number of ideas. But the most enthusiasm was to coerce Elizabeth, which wasn't too hard, into talking to us about that investigation. Elizabeth being who she is, she expanded a discussion about an outbreak investigation at her resort in uh, the seacoast of New Hampshire to something apocalyptic around the end of the earth. Um, 
And so um, her presentation today, I think, is going to be uh, significantly broader than teaching us about a little bit about threat investigation. Thank you, Elizabeth. Good morning, everyone. It's nice to be with you here. Um, I do like talking about BRICS, and I think you'll find it's not a particularly um, heavy scientific lift, but um, is relevant to clinicians, and that's um, something that I've tried to make thematic throughout uh, the choices I've made. Um, when I first put everything I wanted to talk with you about uh, into a slide deck, it was literally 190 slides. So it's been significantly whacked back, and we'll see how we do with regards time, especially because it will be... Um, relevant to hear from you what your experience is and how you can make this talk even more relevant. So I want to make sure we have some time at the end. Um, and I won't be fooled by the five-minute off clock. Um, so uh, I've titled it somewhat provocatively that um, we're, we'll talk about outbreaks, but, but this year, the fourth time that I've done essentially a talk like this, um, I, I want to give a nod to the fact that we are currently in an epoch that's called um, the Anthropocene. This is the era of our planet in which human activity is the dominant influence on the planet and its climate. So um, let, let's see how that works. First is a disclosure. Uh, in the past year, I've served in clinical consultation and um, taken funds from Oxford Immunotech uh, for the purpose of uh, CME, um, but this has been reviewed and found not to be um, influential to this talk. Um, so our outline is, is a simple how-to to remind those of you um, who have not yet heard um, how we approach outbreaks. Um, I want to um, go a next level and talk about the dynamics of outbreaks as it's currently understood in this Anthropocene. I'll talk about some of those outbreaks that I think you, you should and probably want to know about, um, but with the underlying theme of conceptualizing the emerging infectious diseases in this Anthropocene. So always important to start with um, some definitions so that we can use these terms intentionally. Um, cluster, outbreak, and epidemic. So just to distinguish between um, a cluster and an outbreak, a cluster is uh, a situation where there are cases of a disease, patients with a disease, in excess of what we expect as the baseline or endemic rate in our jurisdiction. They are without an identified common exposure. So maybe a bad flu season cluster of cases in a particular region of our state. The outbreak uh, emerges when we recognize that there is, again, that excess over the endemic rate, but that there is a common exposure that needs to be intervened on, especially. The um, difference between outbreak and epidemic seems a little bit more squishy, um, but epidemic is, is generally considered more widespread and involving more people. How do we detect outbreaks? So um, I know that you're aware there's at least, uh, there are about 60 conditions that by law you need to report to your state, the state New Hampshire, or wherever you go in your future. Um, the, um, some of the diseases are shown on that um, left bar, and you know that these are immediately available to you in different forms. But maybe you hadn't noticed that there is a catch-all at the end that has served us quite well. So it is... Um, mandated that you report any suspect outbreak, don't wait to confirm it, yeah, cluster of illness, unusual occurrence of communicable or other incident disease that may pose a threat to the public's health. 
uh, this must be reported within 24 hours of the neuron firing, yeah? So suspect outbreak, so that this has a very low bar for us um, to pick up the phone and talk to somebody at the health department and discuss your concerns. And in fact, this is a common way that we do identify and get early on an investigation of an outbreak. Um, I find it fascinating that most outbreaks come to our attention through um, citizen report. So I, I see Ben Chan here, and I'll refer to him probably regularly since he's my partner in a lot of the work that we do at the state. But we hate to read about an outbreak in the press first. You know, we think we have some privileged um, opportunity to hear about them before WMUR does, but that's not always the case. Um, and you'll hear a couple of examples of how things came to our attention as we go forward. We have routine surveillance systems in place, uh, such as the reportable disease requirement you have and our, our special population of infection preventionists who are very likely to draw our attention to things that are going on in the nosocomial setting. We have early event detection surveillance systems that I think would surprise you and suggest that Big Brother is watching in ways that you hadn't realized. For example, we monitor over-the-counter drug consumption pharmacies to see if people are buying up a lot of Imodium or Theraflu or whatever. We um, detect um, uh, school absenteeism also as an indicator of when there might be an outbreak in a jurisdiction of our state. Um, Real-time death certificate surveillance. So these are some of the ways that we detect outbreaks. The lab is our partner, so they automatically report um, uh, some reportable diseases, but um, they, they also go the next step now in this era of molecular detection, so we're able to fingerprint and identify when, when really uh, two disease events are linked. Other definitions that are relevant as we're going to go forward and talk about these outbreaks, I'll probably interchange the words agent and pathogen, but that is intuitively what causes disease. Um, the reservoir, that's an important word for us, and that's where the pathogen is naturally found in our environment. A case is creepy epidemiologist talk for a person who has the pathogen of interest. And um, although that's intuitive for us as clinicians, I do want to take that the next step and make sure it's clear to you the difference between an index case and a source case. So the index case is just the first case of an outbreak that lets us know something might be going awry whereas the source case is that person who's transmitting disease uh, throughout the outbreak. Um, mode of acquisition and transmission is well known to you. Uh, in, in broad strokes, person-to-person -person, uh, mechanisms include droplet, direct, which includes sexual, uh, fomite transmission, airborne, fecal-oral, and let me just get it out that nobody likes to be told they're part of a fecal-oral outbreak. Um, um, and, then, and then those that are indirect, um, zoonotic, so that's um, a big one for what's coming next for you. Um, that is, an animal is involved somehow in um, this particular pathogen's life cycle. Food-borne outbreaks, vector-borne outbreaks, and et cetera. I'm sure there's more ways to categorize that, but that are some of the, those are some of the bigger modes of acquisition or transmission. Um, to demystify something that I, I like to sometimes keep as a, as a specialized uh, expertise uh, that, that really is pretty well-known through WHO and CDC circles and elsewhere, um, it's a little misleading that it's numbered as though you'd march through one at a time. And I need to just say right out that these are not generally conducted in order, one at a time, or just once. So this is a real iterative process, um, and it defines some of the lines of action that you see, especially for some of our more urgent outbreak investigations. But um, number one is generally done first, and that's to verify the index case. 
um, so that um, we, we know that we're actually dealing with um, an event uh, that is uh, not a um, lab error or a rumor mill or et cetera. So we always verify our index case diagnosis. Um, and um, a lot of our outbreaks stop right there, frankly. Um, we have to prepare for the <clears throat> field work, remind ourselves. I feel like in public health, I'm so often steep on the learning curve. I keep waiting to not be so steep on the learning curve. But indeed, um, hitting the books and finding out what about the agent? How is it transmitted? What's the precedent of previous outbreaks in, in the United States or elsewhere? Um, we identify additional cases. Each case contributes their epidemiology and their experience so that we might understand better how they got disease and where the source is so that we can intervene there. Establish that source. So uh, we make case definitions, and then we take a pretty um, uh, unfortunate step in that sometimes we don't investigate an outbreak. We have to decide whether it's a priority. Um, there are decisions that have to be taken when resources are, are not unlimited. So um, New Hampshire is not a classically resource-limited setting, but indeed sometimes if there's not a way to intervene on an outbreak, we, we decide not to do much more, not to put much more effort to it. We construct, test, refine hypotheses using familiar epidemiologic techniques, and then hopefully at some point we're controlling the outbreak, communicating widely, so not only to the affected source or index case and the um, other cases involved in the outbreak, but nationally to CDC, um, perhaps uh, also to the governor's office, um, uh, with the press, uh, with the affected community, um, and um, to clinicians as important partners in, in what's going forward. Um, and then ensure control and heightened surveillance and et cetera. So um, I'd like to think about epidemics in a, in a um, way that may be helpful as we go forward thinking about um, how these things happen. And that is that these are interactions between species populations. So in the simplest concept, an epidemic is between two species, yeah? The pathogen and then the human population. And that um, allows us to think about um, uh, simple epidemics in a parallel to predator-prey systems from biology. And I think that's interesting. So, you know, if the T-Rex here is the um, pathogen and the soft, squishy human is in the car there, you know, how, how does each behave in order to be successful in their goal? How do they change? How do they change behavior? How do they um, adapt? So this, the soft human might not buy a ticket to the Jurassic Park. They might wrap themselves in a, in a hard car. They might not move if they find the pathogen can't uh, see them if they don't move, which you know seems like a design flaw to me in terms of dinosaurs, but there it is. Zoonotic epidemics get a lot more complicated. Now we have multiple species populations involved in the way that we have to think about these dynamics, at least three species. So again, the pathogen and the human as probably the most important end features. But in between, we have likely a primary animal reservoir as a zoonotic. There may or may not be a bridge animal reservoir that um, more efficiently links the pathogen to the human. And then there also may be vectors involved. So each of those are moving parts in the dynamic of an epidemic. Um, we are compelled to come back to Ebola. Does that project well for you? Looks a bit washed out, but um, uh, let me remind you of the concepts uh, around the um, epidemic of Ebola, that it is primarily enzootic in animals. 
it's bat to bat to bat to bat. And bats are an incredibly competent reservoir for viruses that can spread to other species. But bats can be asymptomatic. Uh, occasionally, other animals still within the enzootic cycle can become infected. And the primary reservoir or the bridge reservoir may serve as um, the source to the human as there's a spillover event of, of the pathogen into the human population and then off to the races in what's referred to as the epizootic cycle. And the pathogen now is achieved an efficiency of transmission um, human to human through various mechanisms as shown there. So I want to bring you back to your primary um, epidemiologic training and remind you of R naught, right? Uh, so head nods, people remember their R naught? Okay. Um, it, it, just, it simply speaks to how contagious is a particular pathogen of interest. Um, the R naught, it's a basic R for reproduction ratio. How many secondary cases does one infected person cause during their infectious period? Okay. Um, it's conceptualized in an artificial way for the fact that it, it speaks to a non-immune population. And then classically we're taught in epidemic control that if the R naught is below zero, an epidemic will end. If a person does not transmit to at least one other person on average, then the epidemic will end. And this is influenced intuitively by population behavior uh, and density, how often do we bounce into each other, um, but, but lots of other um, subtle features such as climate. Um, in general, it's considered a static number, and the table to the right on the slide um, just gives you a, an example of some of the common infectious diseases, pathogens that, that we're aware of. Measles always tops the list. It's an airborne disease, yeah, and in a non-immune population, it's incredibly effective in transmission. So the average infectious person with measles during his infectious period transmits to 12 to 18 people and see your other diseases down, down at lower numbers, but all the way down at the list of, of this particular grouping is Ebola. So a pretty low R naught, and yet look at the havoc that's been wrecked. And I think it means that we have to go a little bit beyond R naught in our initial considerations. And I think the SIR model starts to introduce um, what, what you understand of, of more complexity in epidemics, that is, um, if, if we're a closed population of susceptibles and somebody comes in late with a pathogen, we, we start here, but then we move in our compartment. We go from susceptible to infected and infectious, and that means that people are moving into this compartment of uh, diseased, yeah? And then something happens to them. They either die or recover, and then they can no longer contribute to the epidemic at hand. Um, so the SIR model, susceptible, infected, or recovered, recovered um, or, or dead, I think, is, is appropriate. So within that, though, we'd like to know what drives those arrows, yeah? And that's the force of infection. This concept will come up. I'm going to weave it into some of the review of the epidemics we'll talk about. What is the rate populations move throughout this? It adds information about the pathogen and the population risk. So measles and TB certainly have a different rate in the impact that they um, yield to a population. Um, we bring in some characters that are intimidating, but actually turn out to be pretty intuitive with regards to how many transmission opportunities are they, how contaminated is the environment, how prevalent is the infection in a reservoir or a vector, and then how effective is that transmission on single contact. So one graphic that gets away from the um, math characters, I think, um, will feel, again, intuitive. Not a scientific heavy lift, for sure. But if, if the end game is the disease or epidemic, 
there's the human population susceptibility driven by the force of infection at lots of levels. Land, our planet's health, climate change, vector populations, the reservoir host health, sometimes parasite intermediate hosts are, are what feature in. And now let's talk about some. Um, we'd be remiss not to remind that there is um, an act active outbreak of Ebola right now that many epidemiologists are watching closely. So for your situational awareness, I'll let you know the Democratic Republic of Congo reported an outbreak in the North Kivu province on August 1st. Immediate response to that showed, suggested, that this outbreak started actually in May. So right off the bat, it's a sad um, delay in reporting to the international authorities for support in that um, the population of the North Kivu province where this is focused is um, the most populous of the uh, DRC provinces and is larger in population than all of Liberia, which featured prominently in the 2014 epidemic. To date, there are um, recognized 312 cases, 277 of which are confirmed. Um, ominously, 10% of those are healthcare workers, which greatly undermines efforts to control this. Um, and the case fatality rate is about average at 62%. What's of concern is the increasing numbers uh, over the last month. Um, there was a Capitol Hill brief on November 6th, so this is how current this talk is. Um, Robert Redfield, the director of the CDC, said the situation is so serious that international health officials need to consider the possibility that it can't be contained and that the disease would become endemic, part of life in the DRC. I find that to be a surprising shift in the thinking, but I think it suggests how very serious the circumstances are. If Ebola transmission shifts to endemic, spread would be sustained, unpredictable, and have major implications for morbidity and mortality, yes, but also for trade and travel and the health of the planet. Um, so let's apply the principle of the force of infection to what's going on now. It's an animated slide, so wish us luck. Uh, so the highlighting there is that in general, the force of infection here in the initial event is the health of the planet, the presence of the reservoir, and how humans come in contact. Is it going out for more bushmeat because there's food insecurity in the village? Um, is it encroachment on animal reservoir um, territory? Um, in, in this particular outbreak, um, we're again plagued by the uh, reality that there's inadequate infection control in this setting. Some, some would say non-existent, yeah. Um, there's extensive transport networks that have long existed and are very difficult to um, control and contain. And these are being pressed as the civil unrest grows. So this has halted the humanitarian response intermittently as there's been assault on civilian and responder populations. There are more than one million refugees within and moving out of the DRC. Uh, and the community distrust is also reminiscent of 2014, where uh, that the response is greatly undermined. There are more than 16,000 contacts to confirmed cases who are um, under efforts for quarantine or have, have passed that. So there are some bad features of what's going on now, for sure. But we also do have a new tr uh, a tool in the possibility of intervening on this force of infection. And the use of the Ebola vaccine is um, uh, in ring vaccination strategies, and all healthcare workers are being uh, vaccinated. So let's talk about that Legionnaire's uh, disease uh, event. The first and immediately concerning reports came from uh, Hampton Beach, uh, New Hampshire. So <clears throat> on August 22nd, Two index cases self-reported that they had been confirmed with Legionnaire's disease, which we 
immediately confirmed for ourselves. These persons um, presented themselves as having been infected at the Sands uh, Resort in Hampton Beach. So um, it wasn't necessarily rocket science. We, we had a clue from the self-reporting patients. Um, they perceived that they had been infected by the hot tub because they were a group of three traveling together. Two spent a lot of time in the hot tub. One didn't like hot tubs, um, probably an infectious disease doctor, um, <laughs> and, and so did, did not go to the hot tub and also did not become sick. Um, while we were doing some of our preparations and investigation initially, um, within uh, 48 hours, we had two additional patients reported independent of these first two. Case three stayed at a different Hampton Beach Hotel, and case four uh, lived in the town near these settings. So um, clearly, we prepared for the investigation by reviewing especially epidemic features of Legionnaires. Let me remind you, it's an aerobic gram-negative bacteria. Um, it's a non-obligate intracellular pathogen of free-living, water-loving protozoan. Um, Legionella pneumophila accounts for 92% of the cases in the United States, zero group one, 84% of those. Um, there are two disease forms, Legionnaire's disease, which is the pneumonic, very morbid and 10% and mortal disease. And then there's Pontiac fever, which is a nonspecific systemic febrile illness, a little bit more difficult to case ascertain. The reservoir for this pathogen is water and soil. The mode of acquisition is inhalation of infected um, such water. And the graphic there reminds that um, Legionella is one of those uh, bacteria that loves biofilms. And, and that informs a lot of the investigations that have been done in the past and need to be done going forward. There have been lots of different water containment systems in, in our uh, buildings that have been implicated. So um, certainly the water coolers spray um, infected aerosol. but Decorative water fountains in hotel lobbies. I usually find a different red ration when I see that in a hotel. Um, or the hot tubs have also been implicated. So things appeared plausible to us. We knew we had an outbreak because, um, indeed, outbreaks occur, but 96% of them in the U.S. are considered uh, sporadic. Um, and in New Hampshire, we have about 30 cases every year, um, none of which have before presented with such a clear, compelling link. So we had three urgent lines of action in response to this event in a very short time frame. The first would be to identify the outbreak reservoir. We needed to do um, epidemiologic studies such as mapping the cases, case interviews were uh, intensive, um, environmental assessment according to the epidemiology. That is, we're not going to shotgun testing all the water. We're only going to follow the epi links presented by the patients as they came in. Lab testing was going to be a very important and uniquely important component of this epidemic as uh, we needed the lab to be prepared to do specialized clinical testing, which would allow us to type and fingerprint and match cases, not just use a UAT, but also to do environmental sampling, which is not the norm for our public health lab. And therefore, we um, extended our reach to the CDC to help ask for their support. We needed to identify additional cases. And if you think of it, most people visiting Hampton Beach are not from New Hampshire, so this was extensive multi-state, and in fact, a lot of Canadians come down, I guess, to enjoy a beach without a polar bear on it. So <laughs> making sure that we could identify cases all over the place. Communication, indeed, was uh, additionally complex. Clinicians like you, I hope you all got the Han, so that you can identify 
report existing cases that might be linked, help us in that case ascertainment and epidemiology, and then prevent new cases by appropriate counsel to your patients who wonder whether they should keep going forward with their planned Hampton Beach visit. We needed to talk to the community. There were certainly at-risk businesses here, weren't there? Um, and the residents were immediately concerned about their own health. We had a duty to report to visitors who were either right there already or were planning a visit. The immediate steps included in great challenge to close two hot tubs that pointed initially by epidemiology. Um, those communications came kind of fast and furious beginning on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. Um, so stakeholder meetings with the community and um, discussions with the governor's office, press release came out very quickly. The health alert network that you received, EpiX, is a similar mechanism for communicating with public health professionals in other jurisdictions. Um, we had a press avail to help with the um, very heavy uh, press interest that, that came quick. Um, a town meeting, um, which I'm sure Ben will also recall um, as, as a, a very challenging meeting as people saw the significance of this epidemic for the approaching high season of Hampton Beach community. And then to do that water and environmental assessment, as said, we realized we would need to invite our federal partners to assist. So that environmental assistant was fascinating. So we canvassed the area for opportunities for water aerosolization, right? We, we looked for water coolers, which have been very efficient transmitters using satellite imagery and a drone. Um, and we reviewed the water management practices at the places the EPI pointed and evaluated the water there, the temperature, the pH of the water system, the free chlorine that was there, and then collected bulk and, and swab samples. So bulk, like a liter of water out of a faucet, and also swabs of like, uh, you know, shower heads and inside the um, faucets, as indicated only by the epidemiology. So um, the smoking gun, so to speak, uh, on arrival, the hot tub at the Sands Resort hot tub had been drained, cleaned, and closed to the public, um, but had some concerning biofilm still evident. Um, and it was an unusual setting for the fact that it was in a small enclosed room. So how did it spread to people who had not been in that hot tub as cases started coming in without a direct link to this hot tub? Um, it's, it's interesting to us that um, this room, this hot tub is behind this wall, was actively vented out into areas that were public um, to keep it cool enough, I think, but also probably to put water aerosols out. That faucet there is a place where people can rinse off after being in the ocean. The second EpiLink was at the Ashworth L to M Street area and the Harris C Ranch Motel. Um, there's their hot tub and I think the feet of the intrepid um, public health investigators. I don't think your feet are there, are they, Ben? No, okay. Um, so our environmental samples, we collected 34 from the Sands Resort and noted initially low, inappropriately low water temperatures. Um, 16 of those specimens were PCR positive for um, Legionella in the hot tub and in the water distribution system to the hot tub. 10 were collected from the Harris Sea Ranch Motel and they had already shocked their system. So um, it's not at all surprising to us, we, we made no recovery. Whether there were bacteria ever there or not, we won't know because uh, there were very high levels of free chlorine in the samples that were taken. Um, the CDC was able to deploy molecular testing that showed that the environmental samples matched the human uh, samples. So um, I think we, we had enough in order to serve a public health order through uh, the, the authority of the RSA 141C. So we required these things, that 
all people be alerted to the presence of Legionella and cases in um, this resort um, at the time of their reservation, whether a walk-up or an internet reservation or a phone. We provided a script for the workers at this hotel to say to people. We required that they obtain certified remediation by an independent agency um, that could use those different methods of getting Legionella out of systems, confirm that remediation, and then uh, that they post notices at the facility. So um, these were tough notices. Uh, we, we drafted these to say, you know, there's been Legionella here, and basically this is a high-risk infection. Your risk may increase if you're older than 50, smoke cigarettes, or have basically multiple medical conditions. Um, so I think this really, you know, compassionately for the hotel made vacancy really pretty prominent. I mean, these these were compelling notices that had to be put out. Here's the epi curve. We love showing epi curves, don't we? For 19 confirmed uh, cases, um, and this is the week of identif uh, weekend of illness onset. Uh, we, we did not have cases after the hot tubs were closed. Um, 15 of 19 at the end of the day linked to the Sands Resort uh, area for who were not directly linked had probably been in the area. Um, this was a very morbid event, 16 required hospitalizations, multiple ventilated, and, and one known death to date. Um, I wanted to make some more general comments about Legionella. Uh, Legionnaire's disease is increasing fivefold in the U.S. In, in the time frame as shown. And why is that? I think those are some interesting features that bring us back to some of the preliminary comments I've made, that um, certainly the way that we um, uh, handle our water in our human sources is contributing um, for example, we have an aging infrastructure of, of water distribution, and we also employ water-saving building modifications that turn out to favor the pathogen. Um, and then warmer um, temperatures of our planet are probably contributing to the survival of its host and uh, the bacteria itself. We're also impacting the force of infection through our increased susceptibility as humans as the population ages, and we are um, using increasing numbers and varieties of immunosuppressive medications. So here's another event, to be a little lighter about it. Um, this is a local ongoing event, and I think is appropriate also for your situational awareness. <clears throat> this is a cryptosporidiosis cluster. Um, in April, we had reported six cases. Five of six of those initial index cases were reported by a single astute clinician, so God bless you. Um, in the next month, eight additional cases had been seen by the same practice. They could clearly tell something was going on and going wrong. And we marched through the typical outbreak investigation steps. We verified this. This was not a, a rash of false positive testing. We found that many additional cases who readily presented their descriptive epidemiology. And it was pretty easy in this case to construct hypotheses and then continue throughout all this time to watch cases roll in. In, the ter in terms of preparing for the investigation, remind you the agent is a single-cell protozoan parasite with a pretty short incubation for a parasite, um, causing watery diarrhea, abdominal cramps, fever, and nausea that lasts about one to two weeks, um, but certainly can last months or a year if you're immunocompromised, such as by HIV. The reservoir RAR is clearly cattle. Human can get in the mix, but um, this is a zoonotic infection, <clears throat> so much so that... Um, there's a routine word in cattle agriculture that is called scours. It's a common cause of calf diarrhea. Studies show cryptosporidium uh, oocysts in the feces of 70% of 
of calves between the ages of one and three weeks. Modes of transmission, therefore, are a zoonotic, uh, fecal-oral from a contaminated human, or food and waterborne um, when feces of cattle or human get into the, the chain. Outbreaks in our country have largely been around uh, recreational water events and uh, consumption of contaminated food. In this stepwise investigation, 12 of the 14 initial cases all self-reported calf exposure. Four even reported contact with the same sick calf. Here he is. Um, this is <laughs> HIPAA compliance, I think. Um, two families were especially the target of the initial investigation for um, illness in, in them and in their friends who came over to visit these calves that were intended for 4-H um, uh, hobby. And then we've had ongoing cases from lar a large UNH dairy farm and among those who consumed raw milk from one particular farm in, in New Hampshire. Um, this latter likely represents cross-contamination within the milk bottling area. Most infectious disease doctors would tell you consumption of raw milk seems like a bad idea for lots of different diseases, but in this era, I would strongly suggest against it, huh? Do we have adequate control measures? I don't know. Look, I'm, I put a question mark there. I find it very frustrating. Um, so we just provide education to people who are going to be in, in touch with calves. You know, we should, in the larger barns, track contacts, have a guest book, hear a talk about the risks before you enter some of these big, heavily contaminated barns, advise people not to touch animals, but that's not our nature, is it? Wear disposable booties. Ay, ay, ay. I'm not feeling good about this. Um, and in fact, cryptosporidiosis is emerging locally. You need to have this on your differential when you see folks with diarrhea um, nationally and even globally. And why is that? There, this is smack in the middle of changes with regards to our vertebrate reservoir host. Um, this is you know, sort of the idyllic way we used to milk our cows, isn't it? Um, beautiful outside, couple of cows, little livestock. And now we're in these like rotary um, milking parlors and, and massive concentration of our animals as we embark in um, you know, mega agriculture. So the force of infection is clearly driven by um, the reservoir host, increased in density and um, leading us to an environmental availability. Um, we also identify human behaviors that are uh, relatively new. You know, probably in a um, generation we have uh, established the notion of petting zoos and, and some country, country fairs, right? Hobby farms, people with just a few animals who don't have the same kind of training in, in handling animals safely. And then the exotic pet market, which also is something that infectious disease doctors don't love. Um, I want to just make a quick nod to the fact that I think climate and weather are also driving this force of infection. We're going to come back to that. Something that also struck here in the Upper Valley that I thought you might be interested to hear a succinct review of is puppies from Puerto Rico. So uh, um, two puppies ill, consistent with leptospirosis, were reported to us at the health department. Both had to be euthanized, one in New Hampshire and one in Vermont. The one in New Hampshire was PCR positive for leptospirosis, and the one in Vermont had a very consistent autopsy. So we were off to the races in the investigation here. These two euthanized puppies were part of a 10-puppy rescue from San Juan, Puerto Rico, following the September 19th Category 5 Maria um, hurricane. Um, so that is a graphic of, uh, NOAA graphic of the hurricane and, and some of the devastation that was wrought, especially with regards to infrastructure destruction and flooding, uh, where people and animals are forced to then um, participate. Um, so preparing for this investigation, I want to remind you that um, leptospirosis is a worldwide aerobic spirochete bacteria. 
Also, a um, pretty broad incubation of two to 30 days in this case that causes all kinds of itises. Um, the reservoir is rats primarily, but also other mammals can get involved in this as secondary reservoirs or bridge reservoirs um, and effectively concentrate this bacteria in urine. And therefore, modes of acquisition, again, are zoonotic via contact, especially with urine directly or urine-contaminated water or soil thought to be only effective through non-intact skin or mucous membranes. It can also be acquired through rat bites and ingestion, but the contact is the primary mode of uh, international acquisition. Um, outbreaks occur especially after heavy rainfall and flooding, and especially in tropical areas with poor housing and sanitation. So there is interesting epidemiology. It's worth remembering leptospirosis is the most widespread zoonotic globally, more than a million cases estimated by the World Health Organization each year, about 59,000 deaths. There are approximately 100 to 150 cases a year in the United States. 50% of them are not then, surprisingly, in Puerto Rico, given infrastructure and propensity for flooding. And then the next, in Hawaii. Um, there had been the largest U.S. outbreak, however, in Illinois, following a triathlon where the swim was through contaminated water. 12% of the 834 participants um, were, it, it showed evidence of infection. This is why I don't do triathlons. Um, <laughs> So, um, in the investigation, we found out 10 puppies flew um, from San Juan to JFK to Logan, then were driven through New Hampshire to Vermont, where they were then brought back, four of them, to the New Hampshire Park and Ride, uh, New London Park and Ride, excuse me. Four came to, to many of your hometown, Norwich, uh, including the two index puppies. Two stayed on with the rescue director, I think in part because they weren't feeling very well. Um, in fact, three of the eight surviving were symptomatic with diarrhea and lethargy. They, all the puppies were given doxycycline and improved. Um, but we were concerned about the humans who might have had contact with these reservoirs, right? Um, those who handled the puppies during the airline exchanges, the um, rescue staff, um, the eight foster families engaged in care of these puppies, and the four veterinarians' offices that encountered these dogs, too. Two human contacts were symptomatic and sought care at Heater Road. So maybe some of you were aware of this. They were treated appropriately with doxycycline and recovered. The communication was difficult. This had been subtitled, AKA, I hate my job. When you start seeing, um, you know, pictures like this, right? Little Luna, little Luna imported from Puerto Rico, saved from the floods, and then the health department puts them in cages. Oh, we're awful. Um, so the quote there suggesting that we were concerned uh, about humans that came into contact with these animals. And um, our investigation showed that awful space we often get in in public health. Bear with me for this and others when I say the risk is low but not zero. You know, what do we do with that? It's a very frustrating space for everyone because people weigh risk and cost differently, don't they? So it's our job in public health to say risk is really low for your transmission, but, but not zero. So these puppies really got around. <laughs> not cool. They had a silent auction benefit for the rescue organization at Ramonto's in, in uh, Hanover. Maybe some of you were there. They put six puppies in the pen for interaction with the public on the patio hoping that, you know, maybe somebody would support the, the, the rescue and, and maybe want to... Um, uh, adopt one of the dogs. But people also brought their own dogs, so now we have other potential reservoirs in this mix. Um, two puppies went to watch a football game at Hanover High and were passed around, of course, because puppies are really cute. And then who knew? Puppies also wanted a good deal, and they went to the TJ Maxx. <laughs> 
TJ Maxx let them in in West Lab um, in order to try on little sweaters because the Puerto Rican puppies needed um, sweaters for the incoming winter. So lots of people encountered these, and we wound up saying this phrase a lot. Risk is low. Uh, you know, how, how you weigh it, I don't know. But let me talk about leptospirosis in broader terms, if I may. Um, I want to, again, suggest that what we do to our environment has contributed to increasing numbers globally and potentially harvey, uh, suggesting we'll see more of this uh, in, in our own settings. So um, we affect our environment, um, and, and we have impoverished environments, um, uh, that, and, and we, we change our climate and, and result in flooding that favors uh, the vertebrate host, the um, rat, to pee in those waters that then put us in contact through environmental availability and create a force of infection that's pretty dynamic right now. I want to um, say more about climate and weather because we certainly are seeing more um, events of natural disasters that are thought attributable to uh, the fact that our weather is becoming warmer and more wet. So um, climate change clearly impacts outbreaks. So in um, all the recent reading that I've been doing regarding our um, uh, outbreak dynamic changes in recent years, climate change is being increasingly looked at. Um, and we now have the phrase of climate-sensitive pathogens. So a high proportion of human and domestic animal pathogens turn out to be clim climate-sensitive. So they are more efficient, they're more prevalent, um, they're more pathogenic through any mechanism of, of uh, uh, transmission. Um, and, and that's especially true for those that are zoonotic, that normally live within an animal. Um, and that's very concerning because um, zoonotics account for a disproportionate a proportion of emerging infectious diseases, pardon the abbreviation there. Changing rainfall patterns, rising global temperatures are affecting the incidence and distribution of pathogens. Um, and some of the pathogens that now have evidence base showing this um, are, are, are shown here. And I, I think that, you know, that these are very concerning. Ones to watch in New Hampshire are those that are um, vector-borne. So again, situational awareness, I'd like you to have heard of these, or these particular pathogens and think about them in the context of your own patient care. Um, you may know that during our active season, on a weekly basis, we report out in, in a public uh, way on our website how many um, humans, mosquito collections, and animals are impacted by our arboviruses or vector-borne diseases. So the two um, that I, I think that people are not routinely aware of are these Jamestown, Jamestown Canyon virus and the Powassan virus. So our first human isolation in New Hampshire of each of these was in 2013, busy year. Um, right now we're at seven total cases of Jamestown Canyon and um, three total for Powassan. We do not do, we do not have capacity, there is no method for animal or mosquito testing. So we don't know much of what, what's going on in our reservoir or vectors. But, but I think it warrants that we increase our uh, surveillance for these through communications just like these, that you're aware that you should perhaps be testing when um, uh, the situation aligns. So the clinical syndrome is, is a difficult one for us during our summer season, isn't it? So asymptomatic, well, that's going to be hard to identify, to uh, fatal meningoencephalitis for both of these pathogens. Reservoirs are mammals, uh, large mammals for Jamestown Canyon, like deer, moose, and 
Python. We don't have many of those around anymore, do we? Powassan, small mammals. I love it when you could talk about a groundhog in ground rounds, but here it is. And, and then vectors are either mosquitoes for Jamestown Canyon or the evil Ixodes tick for Powassan. Um, it's mosquito-borne in Russia, which is a very interesting competence of this particular virus. Um, here's our arboviral activity within New Hampshire for the past seasons. And, and these are also available to you for, for your consideration. And I'm sure your eyes are immediately drawn to, to kind of where we are, right? Here's, here's Lev, and you see a poor little guy in a box, and here and here, and, and that's uh, not good news. So those were JCV, so Jamestown Canyon virus right near here, with no travel to attribute that to. So this is um, locally acquired, um, and, and these are worth watching. One thing I would make mention of in a graphic like this is that you may not have confidence in all these areas that do not show um, uh, evidence of these pathogens because we don't routinely do surveillance in every jurisdiction, right? So these, these are complicated decisions for doing mosquito testing, and it's costly as well. So sh surely the force of infection for these new ones is, is up here at the top. And I want to say again, vector and climate change are inextricably linked. So malaria is clearly showing... Um, an increase due to climate change as the vector um, establishes a greater um, environmental range into areas of altitude that had never before seen malaria. Um, you can attribute the emergence of Zika and its very competent vector, Aedes aegypti, um, to, to climate change in some part. Um, chikungunya, dengue, and Lyme are also increasing because of vector changes. Um, and and we're, we're really anticipating that there shall be um, increase in some of these important diseases globally as a result of climate change. So in dwindling moments, I'll pull out my crystal ball, which is you know, totally cracked and useless. But let me just, again, make the point that for emerging infectious diseases, things that have a new name or a new recognition as a human pathogen, these are incredibly complex intersections, aren't they? So the pathogens can adapt, and they mutate, and they become resistant, and the vectors travel and expand their range, and they thrive in climate change. And they can also become resistant to our efforts to control them. The reservoirs overpopulate, they encroach on new habitats that bring them closer to humans, et cetera. Humans do a lot of bad things. Um, in particular, as I've tried to highlight here, probably um, climate change uh, is a big one. Um, and then environments are also changed and do change. They urbanize, they deforest, they get warmer, they get wetter. So I don't know what's the next coming plague, of course, but I would look to the zoonotics as alluded, uh, that the majority of our emerging infectious diseases are zoonotic, more than what we know of, of, of straight-on human pathogens, established human pathogens. Um, and most of those emerging infectious diseases originate in wildlife. So that seems like a good place to look. If you're wondering whether there's case ascertainment or, or bias in the media, it's not the case. There clearly is a rate of disease emergence that has increased in recent decades. Um, things like the way that we're in contact with animals, you should think H5N7 here, think MERS-CoV, um, the plague in Madagascar, um, avian influenza, monkeypox in the groundhog population, or SARS from the civet cat trade in, in Asia, and of course, um, the very competent, never to be ignored, bat. In fact, viral spillover from animals to humans is being modeled and considered very closely as to which will come next. And, and what we know from great studies like this that line up viruses in animals that are also capable of causing disease in humans, we, we find that bats harbor a significantly higher proportion of zoonotic viruses than all other mammalian orders. And our 
concern about touching bats is, in, is you know, deeply rooted in our genes, right? And, and it seems like that comes from something. It's probably not a good idea to, to bring them close to our homes or encroach on their environments. So outbreaks are approached with standard approaches, yeah? Clearly define the reservoir, the vector, the mode of transmission, et cetera. I make the point repeatedly that emerging infectious diseases are increasing. These are often zoonotic. Local examples today have been cryptosporidiosis, leptospirosis, legionnaires disease, and our um, arboviruses. The role of climate change in the changing epidemiology of infectious diseases and the force of infection on emerging infectious diseases is clear and undeniable. And then we are making efforts to predict what's next, but I think that that will require continued um, uh, nonspecific vigilance to identify these diseases from um, people just like you. So thank you very much for your attention, um, and I hope we do have some time for questions. We do have time. Any anybody want to start with a question? Yeah. Hi. Um, question for you. Do we have mechanisms in our lab that alert authorities, or do clinicians have to kind of take the next step to make the call? It's a great question. First, I would say we would rather have two reports of an important event than no report. So go ahead and duplicate reporting. But the lab does have an automated system, essentially. I'm looking to Ella, of course, um, to, to transmit um, laboratory reports of such diseases. A lot of diseases, such as suspect TB, suspect meningitis, will not have a lab report that can go automatically. So clearly there needs to be a partnership from clinicians and the laboratory to, to report appropriately. If in doubt, report. Yes. Oh, sorry. Elizabeth, what, was the, what is the CDC going to do about this kind of thing then? Are, like, are, are resources being available enough? Or? What's the story there now, do you think? Um, so I, I think that, no, of course, there's not enough resources, right? I, I think that, again, this epidemic presents a very unique challenge to the humanitarian response that is beyond what happened in West Africa because of the civil unrest. So the violence against the humanitarian workers and, and um, the response teams, it, it precludes international response, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's super hard. So, so a lot of the effort has been gone into um, um, the UN peacekeeping. So increasing that in order to, to try to get some of the Ebola treatment centers built and staffed and et cetera. But, but controlling the epidemic through our typical methods of isolation and quarantine are going to be very challenging in this one as the refugeeism is so high. So fix the underlying problem. I mean, this is not for CDC, is it? Um, and, and they continually send response and pull them back as the violence ramps up. So I don't know, Peter. I'm I concerned. I know I have some good friends that work at research centers in Uganda nearby, which is kind of where the yep. end response to that part of Congo goes. And yes. they have spent millions of dollars of our tax money on elaborate early warning systems yes. for, for the U.S. so that we know when those guys have diseases. Yep. Way, but it's interesting that we have all that, but we don't really have a. I understood you can't go into the middle of the epidemic. Something one wonders about the, the scientific mismatch. Absolutely, no. These are these are complexities that can't possibly be addressed easily by one bilateral by any NGO. But I mean, this is really an example of. Um, planetary health, you know, where we have to all come together and figure out the multiple complexities quick, right? Because this is growing every day. And, and the notion that we're going to give up and we're just going to call it endemic is horrifying. 
Yeah, horrifying. Yes. Oh, I did it again. No, no, <laughs> Sorry. You can take too much. Too much energetic energy here. Yes, Bob. So I remember years ago traveling internationally, and the um, flight attendants would go up and down the aisles with pesticide spray. Still do. Just, still do. I'm just kind of interested in the whole issue of stowaways and international travel, and if there's any, what's going on now with respect to trying to mitigate that uh, opportunity for transmission. Uh, a few questions in there, I think. But yes, they still do walk up and down the aisles when the plane is going from a malaria or yellow fever endemic area to a non-such destination. So they still do walk through. I, I don't know what all of my breathing of that stuff has done, but so it is. So there are international regulations with regards to transport of goods and potential zoonotic transmission, so like the exotic animal trade. That's why a lot of us are really horrified with some of the easing back on um, animal transport rules. You know, I think it's a, a, some lesson to be learned that the reason that the rescue brought the puppies to Vermont and not just stopped in New Hampshire is because we, we have a rule against that. You can't bring dogs from Puerto Rico directly. They have to go through a process, right? So it, it, there's variation per ju state jurisdictions for sure. Um, and then nationally, they're pretty dynamic. Internationally, of course, we, we like one of the major lines of action in the current Ebola epidemic control efforts is this point of entry. As, as Peter alludes, this is just way, this is going to be too hard. People are going to go over the border in an uncontrolled way. So I don't, I don't have any answer for that question either. I wonder if anybody has an easy question for me. Um, <laughs> Maybe Dan. Dan, please. I just got a puppy from Canada. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> in Montreal and then drive back. And the paperwork that I was uh, given to get across the border was really extraordinary, much more uh, restrictive and stringent for the puppy than for us. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. I'm wondering how these puppies ever got from Puerto Rico, which I assume is not Canada, so it. It, it's in U.S. territory, so exactly. So, it, so there are no restrictions. Yeah, this this is the, from Puerto Rico was not an international importation, right? Um, so, so that's exactly right. So you had more difficulty getting your your Quebecois puppy across than they did from Puerto Rico, sure. Um, and thankfully, there's not as much lepto, but but there is scrutiny on the importation of animals, um, appropriately so. I think. You know, I hope that you didn't find that to be oh, no, no, yeah no, I mean, inappropriate. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the endemic monkeypox in the United States uh, in the groundhog population is from the importation of, anim of uh, exotic pets from Africa. Again, as an infectious disease doctor, that seems like a really bad idea, and it's borne out multiple times. Yeah. So our erroneous clock, I think, actually does represent the end of the hour. So. Uh, okay, okay. <laughs> well, Sandra, right. thank you so much for really bringing